And very often, a reluctance to speak in public is related not just to fear, but to feelings of inadequacy. All of these objections are manifestations of what I call your inner critic. I'm David Otey, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. This episode draws its content from Chapter 1 of the soon-to-be-released third volume in the Speaker's Quick Guide series of books by yours truly. That book will be titled, The Speaker's Quick Guide to Presenting with Confidence, Overcome Self-Doubt and Embrace the Power of Your Message. It is expected out in early 2021. Today we explore the question, Who am I to speak? Hello and welcome to The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Odie. This program is a mix of content and conversations, and today's episode is going to be a content episode. In fact, I'm going to be sharing with you some of the content of a the next book that I have coming out early in 2021. You'll hear more details of that later. I am a speaking coach. I focus, as you are probably aware, on helping people who give technical presentations. And very often, regardless of the nature of the presentation, regardless of how technical or non-technical the topic, the question that clients bring me to coach them through is a simple question. Who am I to get up there and speak? Who am I to get up there and speak? Well, the short answer to that question is, Who are you not to? The long answer to that question is one we're going to spend some time exploring in this episode of The Power of Story and Science. I remember some years ago when I was coaching a young woman I'll call Linda. This particular woman was the survivor of an abusive relationship. She had a powerful story to tell. And when she came to me, she wasn't ready to tell it. But the reason she came to me was that she had been asked by an organization in the city where we lived at the time, an organization that, among other things, provided shelter for women, primarily women, escaping abusive relationships. This organization had asked Linda to speak at their fundraising dinner. She knew that her story could help other people, she wasn't sure that she deserved the spotlight, so to speak. So you're going to hear a little bit more about Linda and her concerns, objections about being the person in the spotlight, the person at the lectern giving a speech, and you'll hear about how we worked through some of that together as we go through this episode. There are three main points that I want to leave you with as we discuss this question, who am I to speak? Before I tell you what they are, let's consider how this question might relate to you. Do you have doubts about whether it's appropriate for you to be the person up on the stage or at the lectern giving the talk you're planning to give? Do you, does the thought of doing that make you anxious? 
For some people, the idea of getting up in front of an audience to speak may trigger fear. Fear of inadequacy. Fear that they will be uncovered as an imposter. That is, someone who's not as smart, clever, or capable as everyone believes they are. That special case is called imposter syndrome, and it's been identified in psychological literature over the years. And it is related to people's fear of public speaking, that imposter syndrome. If I get up there to speak, they, whoever they may be, will know that I'm just not the brilliant, capable person they think I am. And very often, a reluctance to speak in public is related not just to fear, but to feelings of inadequacy, because we compare ourselves to some ideal, and we think, well, I've seen someone else get up on stage and captivate an audience, and I can't do that. So the audience is going to dislike me. They're they're going to hate me. They're going to think I'm wasting their time for having come together to hear me speak. All of these objections are manifestations of what I call your inner critic or that negative inner voice. And what is that negative inner voice trying to do? What it's trying to do in psychological developmental terms is really quite simple. It's trying to protect you. So one of the first things we need to look at is What is this inner voice trying to protect you from? What is it trying to protect you from? Because there's a legitimate reason why your brain is trying to protect you from doing things that make you feel uncomfortable. So we'll need to figure out what that inner dialogue is and how to counter it. So let's start with that. The first point that I want to make to you is that regardless of what your inner voice tells you, your story deserves to be told. Our brain, let's start with a little bit of brain science here, because after all, this program is the power of story and science. Our brain is constantly trying to do two things, keep us alive and conserve energy. And yes, those two things are related because conserving energy is certainly part of keeping you alive. Now, by keeping you alive, I mean your brain is trying to protect you from things that are existential threats, threats to your existence. For example, your ancestors millennia ago had to live in a much more dangerous world than we do now. They had to fight off attacks from predators like saber-toothed tigers. And so... Because you are the result of many thousands of generations of successful reproduction, that is, people who lived long enough to reproduce and fought off saber-toothed tigers when necessary, you have these defense mechanisms wired into your genetic makeup. One of those is this fight-or-flight mechanism it's often referred to, although it's also referred to as the fight-flight-or-freeze reaction how you respond to an existential threat. The problem is that when you feel any kind of threat now, that mechanism kicks in, even when it's not a threat to your existence. Even when the threat is simply your boss walking into your office with a scowl on her face, wanting some information about something that you're not sure you want to talk about. 
your adrenaline kicks in, your heart rate goes up, your mental energy is focused very narrowly on the threat that is right in front of you to the exclusion of all else, which is why we often make poor decisions under stress because we're not considering enough alternatives. And your blood flow tends to be diverted to your large muscles in your limbs so that you can run faster, jump higher, and hit harder than you could otherwise. But that's not a good state to be in when you're trying to make a rational decision about standing up in front of an audience to speak. And yet that is our physiological reaction that we often have. Why? Because our brain is trying to protect us from danger. What is the danger? Well, let's think about that protective nature of your inner voice for a moment. When it perceives that you are going to do something that could result in severe injury or death, that inner voice is going to try to stop you, and that's a very useful thing for it to do. For example, the idea of jumping out of an airplane, uh, not when it's on the ground, but when it's in the sky, is something that our brains naturally rebel against because it seems like something that would be very dangerous. So we have all kinds of protection mechanisms that kick in to try to stop us from jumping out of that airplane. And this is your, your brain trying to protect you. So these defense mechanisms are the kinds of things that, in this example, a skydiving instructor has to help you work past through a lot of cognitive work that takes a lot of energy in order to convince yourself that you can, in fact, jump out of this airplane safely under certain particular conditions. Well, getting up on the stage to speak is not jumping out of an airplane. Comedians talk about dying up on stage. Folks, that's a figure of speech. It rarely literally happens. Very rarely. So what is it your brain is actually trying to protect you from when it comes to speaking and telling your story? It's trying to protect you from something that was also very important to your ancestors, which is being cut off from your tribe. You see, we humans, being the way we are physiologically and psychologically, we survive better in connection with other people. So the desire to be connected with our tribe, the people close to us, the people whose opinion of us matters, is in fact a protection mechanism. Because at one time, our survival depended on that. So when you get up to speak and you're feeling anxious about doing that, it's because subconsciously you fear rejection by your tribe, the people whose opinions matter to you. So one of the things we have to do is figure out how to counter that inner voice and help it see that, in fact, all it's trying to protect you from is temporary embarrassment the worst that's going to happen is you're going to get up there and make a mistake or fumble over your words or perhaps be disagreed with. The people in your audience want you to succeed. They don't want to see you fail. Nobody goes to hear a speaker thinking, oh, I can't wait to throw some rotten tomatoes. Well, I can't say no one does that. That would be an absolute, but I have never known anyone who does that. And trust me, I've been in front of a lot of audiences. So the first thing to understand is you've got to overcome that inner voice, that inner critic. And one way to do that is to realize that your story deserves to be told. Going back to Linda, whom I coached to give her talk, she had already done the hard work. She had recovered from her abuse, which was mostly psychological and emotional, along with 
economic abuse. That is to say, her abuser had limited her economic power, her access to the resources that she needed to leave that relationship. And yet she had managed to move clear across the country to leave that relationship. So she'd already done the hard work of surviving, of getting out of something that was, in fact, a severe threat to her. But she wasn't convinced that her story had value to others. This protection mechanism was kicking in. So there are two things I can tell you to support this idea that your story deserves to be told. Number one, try to think not in terms of a threat of being cut off from your tribe, but rather think about the benefit to your your tribe, your people, your audience. The benefit to them of hearing what you have to say. You see, sharing your story is not an act of hogging the spotlight. It's not an act of self-aggrandizement. It is, in fact, an act of generosity. Because when you share your story, you're helping someone else see the power in their own story. But it's not just, and this is the second supporting point, it's not just a matter of being generous, being altruistic. It's also a matter of owning your uniqueness. Because you see, you own your story. It is inherent to you. You're the only person who can tell it the way you can and own the right to tell that story. So when you do get up on the stage to share your experience, you are claiming your uniqueness. Your story deserves to be told because you deserve to be heard. Your story has value because you have value. And once I convinced Linda of that, she was able to get up and tell her story. So That's the first point. Your story deserves to be told. The second point I want you to understand is that your story has value for other people. You see, Linda told me that according to statistics, out of the hundred or so people expected to be in attendance at this fundraising dinner, a certain number of them, surprisingly high number as I recall, were likely to experience abuse similar to what she had experienced at some point in their lives. Didn't they deserve to be given the hope that there was a way out of an abusive experience? Your story has value for others. Now, often people doubt that value because they think, again, as I said at the outset, who am I to tell my story? Well, who are you not to? Someone needs to hear your story. Someone needs, even if it's a technical presentation, someone needs to hear the story that you have discerned in your data. You see, when I talk about story and technical presentations, often I get pushback on this idea because there are people who, who, as trained researchers, have learned to distrust anecdotal evidence. And by extension, they distrust anecdotes or stories. And yet, what these people often fail to remember is that in their scientific training, they have become highly skilled at discerning the story in their data. Your data tell you a story. Your challenge is to figure out how to share not just the data, but the story with your audience. The power of story is something I come back to quite often, hence the title of this program. The power of story and science. And we talk about the the power that story has to stimulate the brain's expression of oxytocin, that neurotransmitter that leads to feelings of bonding with your tribe, that 
chemical in the brain that probably made human civilization possible. So it turns out that you can, your brain expresses oxytocin not only when you hug someone, not only when you caress your lover, not only when you pet your dog, but also when you hear a well-told story, a story with a character and a tension to it. Attention is in short supply in the brain. Tension sustains attention. That's from Paul Zak, the researcher who revealed to us the strong connection between story and oxytocin expression. So your story has value in several ways. One is it helps others to see how they might be able to do something different. Another way that it has value is it creates a connection, a bond between speaker and listener. See, your information, even if you think, well, why do I need this, David? I'm giving an information-rich presentation, and I know my information can sell itself. Well, sadly, information does not sell itself. That's your job as the speaker. Your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. Let me repeat that. Your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. And what does your audience need from you? They need information from a trusted source. So they need to, be, to know that they can trust you. They need that connection with you. They need to know, in effect, that you are part of their tribe. And the story that you tell, the story of your data or your personal story in which you reveal why you pursued that line of research or why you escaped that abusive relationship, whatever the nature of the story is, it has value as a way of connecting with your audience and showing them that there is a different way that they can live or a different way that they can see the body of knowledge that you're talking about, a different way that they can experience the world. So you see, the first point is your story deserves to be told. And the second point is your story has value for others. Thinking back to Linda, there were people in her audience who needed to hear her story in order to know that they could say enough is enough, as she did, and escape an abusive situation. Now you might think, well, wait a minute. That story that Linda told was unique to her. It was her experience. How can that apply to me? I'll address that point when we come back from this short break. I'm David Odie, and this is The Power of Story and Science. We'll be right back. You are a knowledgeable expert, and you want your expertise to make a difference to your audience but you can't see them and gauge their reactions. Therefore, you need new tools for engaging that unseen audience. Hi, I'm David Odie, offering you a way to pick up those tools. In my new self-paced online course, you will discover three ways to improve your story, one fascinating tool for hooking your audience's attention, and eight details in your physical environment that will set you apart from other virtual presenters. Today's technical presentations are going virtual, and that means you can reach a wider audience as long as you understand how to serve that audience. So join me for the online course, Own the Virtual Stage. Confidently connect with an unseen audience. Just go to ownthevirtualstage.com for details. And we're back. 
I'm David Ode, and this is The Power of Story and Science. And today we're talking about your inner voice and what it is trying to protect you from when you say, who am I to get up there and speak? Your story deserves to be told. Your story has value for others. These are the two points I've already illustrated for you by talking about my friend Linda and her resistance to getting up and sharing the story of her survival with the audience at that fundraising dinner. Now, can we apply that to something as perhaps dry by comparison as a technical, a scientific or engineering presentation? We can, because we need to look at the third point, which is the issue of universality of your story. To illustrate this, I'm going to turn to an ancient story, a fable by the Greek fabulist, fabulist, fable writer, Aesop. If any of my Greek freaking, Greek freaking, Greek speaking friends in the audience believe I am mispronouncing that, please let me know and I'll try to correct it. Aesop tells the story, told the story of the fox and the grapes. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. A fox is strolling through a vineyard and he sees a bunch of grapes hanging above him. And he wants the grapes. So he starts leaping, jumping, trying to reach those grapes. And yet, despite his repeated attempts, he fails to reach the grapes. So he slinks away, muttering to himself, they were probably sour grapes anyway. The moral of that story, because these fables always had a moral, is we tend to disparage that which we cannot have. Now, is that moral universally applicable? I think it's got a lot of broad applicability to it. Have you ever been in an experience where you realized that lesson as well, that we tend to disparage something we cannot have? So it's a universal message. And yet that universal message was illustrated in the very specific instance of a fox, who apparently can speak or at least share his thoughts with us, and a bunch of grapes. Now, must the person hearing this story desire a bunch of grapes in order for this story to have a valuable lesson? No, of course not. Must the the central character in the story be a sentient fox in order for this story to have value to them? Of course not. So you see, in the particulars of an experience lies a universality of experience. So think back to Linda again. The particulars of her experience were hers. She had been abused psychologically and economically, and briefly physically, although that's the point where she drew the line and left. She had been abused by someone else in this relationship. And she learned that she had the power to make a change in her life. Now, must the person hearing her story be engaged in an abusive relationship to appreciate the power of that story? I think not. Because I think many of us often perceive that that we are in a situation where we have no control over what happens to us. We find ourselves in a situation where we may perceive ourselves as the victim. And that's where Linda was at that time. She was trapped in a relationship where she perceived herself as the victim. What did she want? 
She wanted to escape that situation, even though she felt powerless initially to escape it. What do any of us want in a situation where we feel out of control? We want the power to change. So you see, even in the particulars of her situation that involved an abusive relationship, there is a universality. There is a theme that even in the darkest of situations, you can find a way to say enough is enough and take control and change your situation. So the specifics of her story lead to a universality of a message. So this is the third point that I wanted to make on the topic of how your inner voice is protecting you by prompting you to say, who am I to speak? And that is, your story is unique. Its message is universal. Your story is unique. Its message is universal. Just as with the fox and the grapes. You don't have to be a fox. You don't have to be in a vineyard for the moral of that story to have meaning to you that we often disparage what we cannot have. Your story is unique. Its message is universal. How do you bridge that gap? What I recommend is that you ask yourself four questions. This four-part tool will help you see the universality of your story, the applicability of it to other people. The first question to ask yourself is, in this situation I'm describing, what did I truly want above all else? What was I striving for? What was the strong desire that propelled this story that I want to tell? So that's question one. I've worded it several ways, but it's one question. What did I or do I truly want? The second question that you ask is, you think of someone else that you know, And you think, well, what does this person want that might be related to my want? In other words, what do other people want? And what is the, in other words, a parallel want? So perhaps Linda would say, well, I want it out of this abusive relationship. And she might think to herself, well, other people want out of situations they find themselves in through no fault of their own. So you see, those two questions help you see, help you go from the specific to the universal. Then there's two more questions you ask. The third question is, how did I overcome the obstacle to my striving? So Linda would ask herself, how did I finally find the strength that I needed to leave that abusive situation? Again, the particulars of her story. How did I overcome that obstacle to my striving? And then the fourth question is, what can other people learn from the way I overcame my obstacle. So to recap, one, what was I striving for? Two, what are other people striving for? Three, how did I overcome the obstacle of my striving? Four, what can other people learn from how I overcame that obstacle? If you will think about those questions, write about them, journal about them, I believe you can see the connection between the specifics of your story and the universality of it, the moral of it, in a sense, for other people. That is how we can truly say that your story is unique, its message is universal. The whole object here is to learn how to talk back to your inner voice. 
one of the things I've learned having made the transition from a career in engineering to a career in speaking and coaching other speakers is that speaking is selling. When you are speaking, you are selling your ideas. Anytime you have the privilege of the attention of your audience, you are trying to get them to accept the ideas, the information you're presenting to them. And the second thing I've learned about that is the first sale is always to yourself. In many cases, the hardest sale is to yourself. So for you to become truly sold on the value of your message for someone else, you must find a way to engage that inner dialogue, that inner voice rather, in a dialogue. Remember, the inner voice is trying to do two things, keep you alive and preserve energy. And by keeping you alive, that means, of course, protecting you from being cut off from your tribe. But that's not really going to happen. People aren't going to ostracize you because you get up to speak. They're likely to embrace your message. They may question your message. They may, worst case, disagree with you about your message. (sighs) But the likelihood that they're actually going to run you out of town is very, very slim. The second thing your brain is trying to do is preserve energy, right? And that comes in when your brain says, wouldn't it be easier to let someone else give this talk? Wouldn't it be easier to turn over all of the storytelling in our tribe to the elder who keeps the stories? Well, remember that it's your story that deserves to be told. Your story has value because you have value. Because of that uniqueness, you've got to embrace that uniqueness. Your story has value for others. So you've got to embrace the notion that what you have to say can be helpful to your tribe. In other words, be audience-focused, not self-focused. What can you do for your audience by sharing your story, your personal story or the story of your data, the story of your research, the story of your engineering solution? with your audience. And finally, remember that your story is unique. Its message is universal. Your story is unique. Its message is universal. Find the way to bridge the uniqueness with the the universal by asking those four questions I gave you a short while ago. When you can do that, you'll be well on your way to not Letting the inner voice, the negative inner voice, have the last word. Yes, engage it in dialogue. Know that it's there. Know that your inner voice is trying to protect you from something. And know that you know better. That you know that you're not going to be cut off from your tribe. You're not going to be revealed as an imposter. People want you to succeed when you get up on the stage. They want to hear from you. They want to believe that you know something they need to know. They want you to be their trusted source of information. So get that oxytocin flowing. Tell your story. Bond with your audience. Because remember, your information goes nowhere if you don't meet the needs of your audience. That's a recurring theme for us here on the power of story and science. I mentioned earlier to you that The content I was sharing with you today will be coming out in my forthcoming book, 
This is something that will be out in early 2021. I can't say exactly when yet. As I record this episode, that book is now in the hands of my editor. And the title of the book is The Speaker's Quick Guide to Presenting with Confidence. Overcome Self-Doubt and Embrace the Power of Your Message. It is the third volume in the Speaker's Quick Guide series of books, and the content I've been sharing with you is primarily from chapter one of that book. It's all about knowing that you can overcome that inner voice trying to protect you from getting up there to speak, and thereby answer the question, who am I to speak? Well, who are you not to? So please check back on my website, davidot.com for information that will be forthcoming on the release of that third volume in the Speaker's Quick Guide series. As always, if you have questions for me or comments about this program or suggestions for future guests for a conversation episode, you can reach me by going by emailing david at davidot.com. Again, that's david at davidot.com. Or you can go to storyandscience.com. That's a quick way of getting to the part of my episode that is focused on this podcast slash vidcast. Storyandscience.com. And on that website, you can even find buttons labeled Schedule Consultation. And by clicking that button, you can go to a calendar and find a time to have a 15-minute Zoom call with me at your convenience, because I'd love to engage my listeners, viewers, in dialogue. Again, I'm David Odie. This is the power of story and science. Thank you for your attention. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening.